Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. When Pastor Jeremy this week, I was like, man, I feel like we're getting it right now, but I'm like, I can't feel the pain all the way because I'm so excited about eternity. And it's just like, as I keep thinking about the promises of God, I keep thinking about this, the big story, and it keeps swallowing up what I'm dealing with now. You get where I'm coming from? And so, it just got me hyped. But in my mind, I'm like, you ain't supposed to be hyped. You're supposed to be crying in the corner somewhere. And every now and then, I shed a thug tear. But God is just so good, and he's so powerful, and he's so big in the story, and this eternal hope we got boy, I don't know what to do. I'm just jumping off the wall. So I'm excited to hear the sermon, and, uh, and I just wanted to bring Pastor Jeremy up or whatever. So y'all give him a round of applause real quick. Appreciate it. Um, it's weird to have an applause before you preach a sermon because it could be terrible. So that's cool. Um, but if it's good, God will get the applause, and that's cool. So I'm going to start with this this morning. Like Jay said, we've been in a series called Christian versus disciple, and I've really enjoyed the series personally because it, it really draws literally a line of what, what we do and then what Scripture says and how there's a disconnect. There's something that doesn't match up. And so each week we kind of take a topic and kind of say how people who call themselves Christians in our society act versus how disciples following Jesus act. Um, so I don't know if any of y'all saw, um, the video this week that we posted. I posted kind of late. I posted on Saturday about the sermon, but I asked a question in the video and I said, what are you most looking forward to? If you were to think about it right now, which let's do it. Ask your neighbor, what are you most looking forward to? You can do it right now. And you can actually respond with an answer. What are you most looking forward to? Even if you're a mother and daughter, you can ask yourselves. I'll get to that. That's a good question. Thanks for asking. All right, it seems like y'all have a lot to look forward to. That's great. I'm glad all your lives are really fulfilling and awesome. Um, so here's the point. Most of us, when we, when we think about that, they're like, hey, what are you most looking forward to? People will say, well, I'm not looking forward to Monday, going back to work. Um, maybe I'm looking forward to the Jags game. Maybe I'm looking forward to, you know, like Trisha was letting us know very um, graciously that she's going on this uh, cruise next week kind of rubbing in our face. Um, and it's like, yeah, those are all good things to look forward to, not look forward to. But the question is, how is that any different than a non-Christian? Like what you're looking forward to, is it any different than what a non-Christian, an atheist, anyone else would say? And the answer usually is no. We actually look forward to the same things. So there's a disconnect there. There's, there's something wrong. And I think one of the most unfortunate 
not even to mention unbiblical things that I see us Christians engaging in is this thing I call the cult of now. The cult of now. Um, Some of us like to dabble in it. Some of us are card-carrying members of the cult of now. Um, Have you ever heard of the cult of now? That's probably because I made it up. So the cult of now, I'll give you the, I'll let you uh, have the basic rundown of what it is. Now when I say cult, you no, I'm just playing. When I say cult, what I mean is a misplaced or excessive admiration for a particular thing. A misplaced or excessive admiration for a particular thing. And in this case, it's the now. Having everything now. Doing everything now. So in this cult, the past is insignificant. The future is non-existent. And there's only one measure of time that actually matters. Here and now. And this cult is influencing everything that we do in every interaction we have. So what does it do? It urges us to keep checking and clicking and seeking and stating the newest and latest news and gossip and videos and music and movies and posts and statuses and tweets. It's constant, ever-flowing now. Got to get more to the now. We missed it five seconds ago. Now we're back in the now. And the moment you stop engaging is the moment you fall behind, the out of the now. So you have to constantly be connected, constantly filtering, constantly being present in the now. Um, you might also know this cult by another name. It's called People of the Screen. Y'all heard of them? So I made that up too. People of the Screen. They're always on mobile devices, right? They're, they're trying to constantly keep tabs on what's happening around us. Like, I don't remember this because I'm not old enough, but at one point, streaming videos was an exception, not the rule. It was only for the most important events, like going to the moon, where everyone would look at this video streaming to see it. But now, we're constantly, always looking at the newest and latest now video streaming. Um, Do you know, it's interesting, I found this out, I don't know if it's true, but it it was on the internet, so it's probably true. Um, There are 60, estimated, 60 billion screens in the world. That's, that's basically, for every person, there's 10 screens. So I want you to think about, and we're in America. So imagine, you know, third world countries who don't really have as many screens. It's a lot higher for even us. And we're just surrounded by screens all the time. That's feeding the nowness that we always need to know what's happening now. Um, I went to Hop Tingers last night. Ever, anyone ever been there? I've heard of it, too. That's why I went to it last night. Um, but we went with some friends, and it, was, it took everything in me to focus on the person in front of me because there's literally 40 screens in my peripheral, all playing different things. So I was, like, trying to, trying to look, but I couldn't even concentrate because so many things are moving. And it, was just a, it was just a weird thing. And then that's not even to say when I get home, How many people have found themselves in this predicament where you have your phone in one hand, your laptop right here, and the TV's on? It's called the trifecta. And you're just constantly looking. It was just because we look at screens all the time, right? Um, The question is, why do we do this? What is so seductive 
about constantly being in the moment. And I, I think it's because it's when we actually feel most alive. We feel most alive when we're right presently living in the moment, right? So here's the thing. There's a problem with this. Um, the problem is followers of this cult, they're not free of consequences. There's major side effects. So it's basically when you're living in the now, you're settling on quicksand because it's constantly moving, because time's moving. So when you're standing on quicksand, this produces anxiety, annoyance, impatience. It sinks us deeper and deeper into despair because we can't ever get on top of things. Everything's always moving, and we're constantly seeking and then trying to catch up. Um, we're, we're frantically busy and we're aimless, and we're short-sighted because all we're thinking about is how to get on top of the quicksand. But it keeps going down. Another kind of example, I thought about this because we see everything through screens, is I really thought this week it was kind of like if you're a fish in a bowl, you pull yourself out of the bowl to look inside the bowl, looking what everyone else is doing, but not actually experiencing the life in the bowl. And that's how I feel like we kind of view our, our just present existence, that we're constantly looking, trying to pull out, see the big picture, what everyone else is doing, and we ourselves aren't actually living. So why are we so driven to stare at the screen? And what's on the other side of the screen that's so enticing that keeps us drawn to it? I think this is a good question to ask ourselves. What is it? that we want, right? And I believe it's this longing inside of us for another more fulfilling world that we are not satisfied with where we're at. Um, no one is fully content with their lives. And so we, we wish it was more of what we see on the screen or what we perceive people are doing on the opposite side of it. So the question today is how do we live a life of fulfillment of purpose without needing to compare or see what everyone else is doing or keeping up with what everyone else is keeping up with. And I, I think it starts by asking all of ourselves this question. Does the present dictate your future or does the future inform your present? How do you think about life? Do, does everything right now, you're just choosing what you do to hopefully get to someplace in the future? Or are you acknowledging and knowing what the future is and letting your right now be informed by that. Um, <clears throat> when, we, when we say, anyone in this room that says they're a believer in, in the gospel of Jesus, usually what that means is we believe Jesus did something 2,000 years ago. And that's what we stake our, our faith and hope in. Some of us will even say, I believe the Spirit is currently with me right now, helping, convicting and consoling me and pressing me towards God. But very rarely do, do we think about what God will do, what, that Jesus is actually coming back, and that we have a glorious future with God. That usually does not come in our peripheral view when we're talking about what the gospel of Jesus is. And it's a shame, because what we believe about Eternity completely informs and transforms how we live presently. What we believe about eternity completely 
informs and transforms how we live presently. So if you believe that the future is the vacation, the, um, you know, the Jags game, whatever, it actually transforms and informs how you're living right now in this moment. And I think there's two main reasons why we don't long for eternity, for this glorious future that we have with God. And here are the two reasons. We don't dwell on how amazing it'll be, and we don't let ourselves long for it. So we don't actually think, what is it going to be like? And we don't allow ourselves to long for it. So today, one of the things I want to do is spend a few minutes imagining our future with Christ and what that looks like. Let's, let's put our imagination caps. Um, this is the imagination station, okay? And we are going to think, what is our future like with God in eternity forever? For those who are saved. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the most powerful longings that God has actually given each of us is this longing for home. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It, it's this longing that we're just, we're not completely present and there's something more out there. That there's, we just want that deep, restful, wholeness piece of being home. Um, and I, I honestly feel like it's within our DNA structure, deep within our psyche, uh, that we, we feel this. It warns us, like, the world is not as it should be, right? Or what it could be. Because humans, all of us, were born with this awareness that there's good and evil. Anyone can look in the world and you can say, well, there's good things and there's bad things. And the Bible says we're actually stuck between two worlds, um, so we catch glimpses of what it has been, what it is, and then what it could be. And it's really conflicting for us, but the great thing about it is it gives us this longing for something more. So we're not there yet. We're not even close, right? But my question, one of the questions this morning is, what experience do you all have that awakens uh, that longing to go home? What experience have you had in your life where you can think back like, oh, man, that moment, I, I just wish I was home. Because they come in two ways. It's either a glimpse of joy, something so joyous and amazing that you're like, I wish it was like this all the time. Why can't it be like this all the time? Or it's, it's the, the longings from pain and suffering, like there has to be something more than this. It can't be like this forever. So you're, you're constantly between the two. So you, you have the joyous moments where you're like, man, I wish you like this forever. And you have those terrible moments where you're like, there's got to be more. Um, and have you, ever, have you ever experienced, let's talk about the joyous one. Have you ever experienced a glimpse what it would be like to live in a world that was, that was perfect community and perfect uh, communion, a place of joy, wholeness, and peace where everything seemed right. Have you ever had a moment in your life where it felt like that? Where, where everything was good? Because this is mine. I was thinking about it this week, and it was, just, it was just really healthy and hopeful for me to think about. But the first time I ever went to Haiti, um, I, we'll get to this. So the first time I ever went to Haiti, we, we went on a walk through the village, right? And I don't know what happened. I just, I do things sometimes, and I don't know why I do it. Um, it's a blessing and a curse. 
And I just started going in the, in the village, and I just was like, how do you say Jesus loves you? And it was Jay-Z Remeu. Have any Haitians in the house? All right. Jay-Z Remeu. Um, Sacafet. Sacpasse. All right. Not boule. Got some Haitians. Real Haitians. Real live Haitians. Anyway, so uh, I'm walking in, and I just start saying, it's just, I don't know why. Like, Jay-Z Remeu. Jay-Z Remeu. Just walking through the village. Why? I'm not sure. But what happened was kids started getting really hype and excited. And so I'm like Pied Pipering, these kids all being like, Jay-Z, Remeu. And it's like a long line of kids. And all the parents in the village, and so their energy is giving me energy. We're like laughing. And we just keep saying it over and over and over and over again. And we all find this line, and we come back into the compound. And there's just this explosion of playing. So we have these huge balls, everyone's kicking in, throwing in. All the kids are so happy, running around. And then it got to this point where they kept copying everything I did. So I just sat down because I was enveloped with children. And so any movement I did, they do it. And this one, I don't know, maybe praying mantis? I don't know what it was. But it was just an amazing moment because everyone's so happy and joyful and it reminds me, in Zechariah, he talks about the new heavens and new earth, and he says, and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. Just playing, pure, unadulterated joy. So happy. And I remember that moment because there was nothing better. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And, I, I mean, there's still things with that. And there's stuff with America, too. But, I mean, I remember this one orphanage where anytime I'd start walking up to it, they just had a chant. And they'd go, Jeremy, Jeremy. And then they get hype, and they keep saying it and saying it. And you know me, I get even more hype. So I'd be dancing, and then I'd be getting into it. And then when we got there, it was a huge dance party. It was like, are these little kids angels? Maybe, because that's what it felt like. Welcome me into heaven, because that's what it felt like. So just feeling it. I'm just in it. So those are the moments of joy, right? But then there's also a flip side. And there have been plenty of times where I've cried out in agony and in distress to God. I'm sure you have too. Pleading with him, longing for something more, something different. And what's hard to realize and believe in the times of crisis is that God has already promised us something more. And that there's something more waiting for us. That's better than the, the awfulness that we experience in this world. You see, from Genesis to Revelation, in the whole book of the Bible, it tells the single story of God's relationship to creation. So like God created it, and he knows it intimately, and he's still trying to be in relation with what he's made, and he's redeeming it. And what's interesting I saw this week is it's actually bookend. So at the beginning and at the end of God's story, it starts with a new heavens and a new earth. So he creates a new heavens, new earth out of nothing. It falls and it ends with a new heavens and a new earth that he recreates. And so right now we're going to read in Revelations 21, 1 through 5, about this new heavens and new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from, a fr- from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What an amazing, what an amazing, I don't even know how to describe that. And I'm only saying that because they're more than words to me because I've been looking this week and thinking about what that actually means. What is he saying? And then what he's saying is in the end, we won't be dislocated, displaced. We'll actually be home. Everything we've always longed for will actually be and we'll be there. And we can imagine what this home is like just from this text. Sin will be reversed. Our sin, the thing that we brought into the world, that's brought misery to the entire human race from guilt to isolation to slavery to warfare to abuse, all because of our sin, this will be reversed and be no more. Can you imagine what a world looks like with no sin in it? Think about it. If What would the world be like if there was no sin in it? It would be perfect, right? But what, like, imagine how all of creation would function together in perfection. How would you function if you had no sin? What would you do? I mean, these are things that we can think about. These are things that we can imagine because it's going to be true. And not only that sin will be reversed, but God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And this week I thought about that. I thought about what it's saying here. It's like when we arrive before God with the lingering memories of the suffering of this world that, that are encapsulated in a few tears still on our, still on our cheeks, that, that God will look at us like a loving father, cupping our faces, wiping away our tears and saying, my child, you're home. You don't have to be sad anymore. No more tears that God actually wipes them away. And if we think about it, there's not enough tears to shed right now for this world. From the sorrows of sin that we commit to the heartache over losing loved ones, to the regret of lost opportunities, to the crushed dreams that we have, to frustration and anger at all the injustice in this world. Any human sensitive to pain, any human sensitive to pain, has tears for these things. And then what does God promise about our future in Christ? There are no more tears. Because there's nothing to be sad about. There's going to be no more sin, no more tears. And death will be taken away. We will live never in fear of death. And never in fear of losing a loved one. Because we will just always be. And not only that, there's going to be no pain, which sometimes 
pain is even harder than death. Because death is, it's, I don't even know the word. It just is instant. But pain is lingering. So broken relationships, separation, divorce, rejection, words spoken in anger or hatred towards you. Chronic illness, wrecked bodies, all these things. There's no pain. Everything's good. And so all this pain and death and suffering is all part of the curse that, is, uh, that the whole world, all of creation is groaning under. Because we feel it. We feel it. But the curse will be reversed and it will be the end of sin. And the last thing I want to say about it is this. Not only will there be none of the things we hate, which is all the things I mentioned, but everything will be new and good. So not only will it, there be no badness, there will only be goodness and newness and perfection. How much do we like new things? A lot. How much do you like getting a new pair of shoes? How much do you like getting, I don't know, a new car? How much do you like getting anything new? There's something about it that you just feel like, yes. Huh? You feel alive. You, there's something in you like, yeah. Now imagine if everything was new. Every single thing was new. That feeling, that little feeling that gives us so much joy is nothing because Everything is new. I mean, it would change everything. Our relationship to God, our relationship to creation, our relationship to ourselves. All of it was good, joyous. It was harmonious, peaceful, exciting. And what if that feeling never stopped? Like it'd be cool to walk in it and feel that. But what if that was for eternity? It's amazing. And forever and ever and ever. The glory and splendor of eternity before God is forever. We have a saying as humans, and it says, all good things come to an end. You know what? That's true in this world. Whenever we experience this moment of joy, something where it's an instant of true contentment, we know in the back of our minds, we realize that eventually it'll end, it'll leave us, and, the, and we'll move on. And we feel that. We feel that. But when the people of God are fully in glory, we will never know that feeling, the fleeting moment. The blessing of God goes on forever and ever. Imagine one million years with Jesus. Because that's nothing. I think there's no way I won't be bored in a million years. That's what I think. That's why I'm like, a million years? I mean, what will we do? That's a long time. I feel like I get a little stir crazy. One million years? I get like that after a month. But the thing about it is, I'm not God. And I can't even fathom how it's possible to be satisfied, fully satisfied forever. But that's what God says. Complete satisfaction, ultimate joy, mind-blowing discovery forever. Y you can't imagine it. No eye has seen, no ears heard because it's unimaginable. But this is what he's promising. And yet we think of the gospel as a Willy Wonka ticket 
to go to a floaty, soul-bouncing cloud heaven. Thank you, Greeks, because they put that thought in our head, and it's been stuck for the past thousands and thousands of years. But that's not what God's saying at all. We will have physical bodies and friendships and global exploration and celebration and discovery of God's good world. All the intimate details that he puts in it that we don't even know on this side that science has barely even scratched the surface of, we will get to explore forever. All the while being perfectly present with a living God who is dwelling with his people. Forever and ever. So if we believe this, when we dream of this, it changes everything now. Because that is the future awaiting God's people. So how does fixing our eyes on the, on the gospel's promised future actually transform the vision of our lives now? That's the question. If that's true, we all want that. And we don't even know what we want because it's so hard to imagine that we can literally spend all the time in the world thinking about what that is. But how does that, thinking about that, change now? And this brings us to the second part of the reasons we don't long for eternity. The first was we don't dwell on how amazing it'll be. And the second is we don't let ourselves long for it. We don't let ourselves long for the new heavens and the new earth. What do I mean by that? Two categories. We're either too patient or we're too restless for our future with God. Everyone who is a believer falls in one of these two categories most all the time. So I'll explain what that means. Sometimes when we know eternity is coming and it's secure, we become very patient, which is a good thing. The problem is we can slip into being too patient, which makes us just settle for the now. And this is what it looks like when we settle, okay? We become lazy. We drift. We isolate and silo ourselves in this world waiting for our time to come. We don't engage. We don't participate in bringing God's kingdom come. When we settle for the now and what it has to offer us, the problem is it never can bear the weight of our expectations. And it always feels at best a little empty and we grow disappointed and dissatisfied. As a result, so many people look around. So many people who call themselves Christians live completely bland lives. Because they're settling for now. They're just waiting for their time to come. When we're overwhelmed by disappointments missed opportunities or broken dreams, we settle on sustaining ourselves on these crumbs of little, small pleasures. We settle for a future that's the size of next weekend, um, binge-watching a show, or Instagram hearts. I don't know what you call it, but the, the, you know, the heart things. That's what we, when we settle, we just say, you know what, I'm just going to take my time, and I'm just going to put all of this right in front of me, and I'm just waiting my time. I know where I'm going. But we just isolate ourselves. On the flip side of this, other times when we know what it could be like, we become restless because we know how good it could be. The problem is we can slip into being too restless, which makes us try and seize everything good now. 
We don't want to wait. So we force and grab all the good we can right now, which sounds fine because we're Americans. But when we do that, we actually start to play God. We decide when we get stuff, and we actually elevate the good of ourselves over others. So we want our meals to be perfect, the kids to get over themselves, our spouse to tighten up, our job to go well. I want to be on vacation right now. We need everything to be good now. So when we seize, we try and have it all in this life. Restlessly trying to spice it up, make it better. We begin overreaching because now can never satisfy. So we keep grabbing more and more and more. We get the car we can't afford. We get the wife that's not ours. We walk away from Jesus in the beautiful future he holds because we want it now. Every piece of our culture says you should have it all now. Your best life now. That's all of our culture saying you deserve it right now. Go for it. Get all the best right now. There's no place to be content to wait for what God has promised then in the future. But the thing is, our best life comes later. That's a fact. We can never have our absolute best life now. But we, we spend all of our time, resources, and energy trying to, trying to have that. When we bind to the promises and dreams of all the health and wealth and entertainment and pleasures of this life in this world, we fall flat on our faces when it doesn't pan out because it never pans out. We blame God when things go wrong because we're not having it now. Instead of resting in him in the hope of a promised glorious future, we become so spoiled thinking God owes us so much right now. That promised future, we say, we want it now, God. So before I go any further, I, I want to say this. I don't want to say having things now is bad because it's not. What I'm talking about is your motivation. Is your motivation to have everything perfect now, all the good things now? Because if that's the case, you're always going to be disappointed and you're always going to be seeking more and more for now. But if you think my life right now I'm dying to myself. I'm going to be a humble servant of God, and I'm going to walk in faith and trust in him. Anything good that comes is actually a blessing, and you're actually so excited for it, and you're so contented that God keeps blessing you. So are your expectations up here that you deserve all of it now, or are they here thinking, I don't deserve anything, and whatever God gives me is completely by his grace? You talk about being content in this world, you will never be content if you try and get everything now. You'll always be searching. But true contentment comes from laying down your life and seeing everything as a blessing from the Lord. So a question for today is how can you be more restless and more patient? Two problems, one solution. We have to cultivate a passion for God's future new creation. And not only, in, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly 
as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. True Christian hope actually produces this paradox in our life. We are restlessly groaning because we want it to be different. And we're patiently waiting because we know it's coming. Christian hope is the absolute confidence that an incredibly good future is ours for certain. And when that happens, it heightens our desire and it lengthens our patience. So a restless patience leads to needing this world less and loving the world more. When you are restless and patient, you don't need this world because you know what's coming, but you love this world because you know God created it and that he's still invested in it, even invested in you. Because God's fighting for it in the midst of redeeming and restoring all things. So we can love the world and love the people in it and love creation itself. But we don't need it because we know the new heavens and new earth is coming. It's this paradox. It's a both and. And yet, that's all great. But many people will likely die clinging to a broken present rather than a perfect future. Many of us will die hoping we get something out of this present, even though we're in uh, two separate worlds colliding right now. And you, you can't have it now. And so we'll be clinging and grasping for things here and just die trying rather than just putting our full hope in the future. And this is because we don't believe several things. We don't believe it's waiting for us. Um, we don't believe that Jesus guaranteed it. And we don't believe it's fully secure for us. We, we don't believe it's waiting for us because we don't believe that Revelations 21 and 22 are true. We don't necessarily think that that's actually the reality of realities and it's right in front of us and it's coming. We don't believe Jesus guaranteed it because we don't believe that Jesus actually said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And a lot of times we say no. I need the present now because I think I'm going to die. And so there's an end date. So I need to get everything now. But Jesus is saying, you'll never die. And I have everything for you. And it's guaranteed. It's certain. You will never die. Do you believe that? And we do not believe it's fully secure because we don't believe Jesus actually said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them away from my Father's hand. It's completely secure. Once you're in, it will happen. But we don't believe that because we're trying to get everything now. And even though with all that said, God actually gives us the opportunity now to place our faith 
and whole trust in his words, in his promises, and in his truths. I love how Jesus says, do you believe this? Because that's the biggest question. It's not, what are you doing? What have you done? Prove yourself. He's saying, do you believe this? Do you believe in me? Do you believe that I'm enough? Do you believe I'm the gateway to heaven? Do you believe that you will have forgiveness of your sins, that I died for you? Do you believe that there is an eternity waiting for you that's more glorious and majestic than anything you could have ever imagined? Are you willing to lay down your life now, putting everything on the table because you believe in the core of your being that there is a future waiting for you and God? That it's not just a past tense religion. It's not just a present, hey, let's figure out what the Spirit's doing now. But it is a vision focused on the future, a future hope that actually gives us information and transforms us of how to live now, what direction to walk to. Do you believe God's future is better than anything, anything that the cult of now will force down your throat? That's the question we all have to ask ourselves. So people of the screen, that's all of us. What if when you left worship service today, I want you to think about this. What if you left worship service today, powered down your phone, uh, refused any screen time for the rest of the day until you went to bed, and actually practiced Sabbath, actually practiced Sabbath, resting in God, seeking God, feeling the comfort and uh, love of God as he fills you up. My question is, what would you physically do? You probably would meditate. Because I'm thinking, what would you physically do if you didn't look at any screen? Just, I'm just saying imagine. I might take a nap because I'm tired. I might read a book. I might enjoy outside, enjoy creation, maybe cook a meal, write a letter, think about ones that I haven't talked to in a while who may be hurting, pray, meditation. It's a remarkable thing to think about, right? If you jump back inside the fishbowl, what would you actually do if you didn't spend your time looking at the whole thing? And everyone's so focused in this cold of now of like, Truly living, truly coming alive. And the paradox of that is everyone's dying, looking at everyone else. The only people actually living are the ones inside, actually living and existing and being human. I think if you actually took the time to reflect, well, today, if you did that, I'm not saying you have to you're your own person. You can do whatever you want. But if you did it, I think you'd actually find time to reflect on your status with God. And it would be refreshing because he would gently remind you who you are and who he made you to be. He would gently remind you of truths and promises as you read scripture. The, the promises he makes the people of God. You know, and if you did that, you'd actually look like a true disciple of Christ, which it's more than just looks. You would be. Because this whole Christian versus disciple thing is like, are you following Jesus or are you following the culture? Are you following the, the different ideologies of today? 
A disciple of Christ has eternity stamped on their eyeballs. If, if someone's truly a disciple of Christ following Jesus, their, their blessed hope is that th- Jesus is coming back and they'll see Jesus again. Eternity is within their whole vision of everything they see. It's stamped on their eyeballs. And when that happens, you become more patiently restless for the future. You know it's coming, so you're patient. But you know what it could be in that the kingdom's coming now. That's what's coming now, that God's transforming the world now, and that you get to be a part of it, and that you actually get to see the kingdom coming together as God's leading it, and we all get to play a part of it. And in the meantime, you would need the world less because this isn't your final destination. And you would love it more because you would see how much God tenderly cares for it and continues to fix the broken. You will echo John the Baptist. No, John the Apostle. If you, if you patiently are thinking through this, you will definitely echo his response to Jesus at the end. When Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon, the only response John has is, amen, come Lord Jesus. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Amen, that is true, I believe it fully, and I will wait for you. But I'm restless, Lord, come. Come Lord Jesus, fix and heal and restore all things to new. And that actually should be our prayer. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, let's pray. Lord, we're before you. We're before you right now. And we are just existing in the middle of a grand story that you've already played out. You already know what's going to happen. You've ordained everything. You know all things. And so we rest in that. And we believe that. It's true. How, how, does, how does the future inform how we live now? Well, we look to you, Lord, because you did not take, when you came to this world, you did not take all the glorious things that Satan offered you in the desert. You rejected him because you had a bigger vision and a bigger mission and you knew what was to come that you sacrificed and suffered for the big picture, knowing that there's a glorious future. You laid down your life knowing that God would resurrect you and that the Father would not leave you or forsake you. You could only do this knowing what the future had. And we have struggles. We have many struggles. And we have moments of joy. But our life is a roller coaster when we live in the now. When we don't hope for the future, when we don't stand on the foundation, the bedrock, Jesus Christ. When we take communion today, Lord, please let us realize that that there is a future awaiting those who believe. That we need to give up control of our lives now knowing that you have control over eternity forever.
and entrust you with our lives, knowing that it might not be what we want sometimes, but you always know what we need, and you're a good God, and you love us, and you're sanctifying us, and you're drawing us closer to yourself, and that there's nothing more glorious, amazing, satisfying than that. Help us to let go of the now, our fear of death. Comfort us, Lord. Send the Spirit now to comfort us. Draw people to yourself. And as we, as we take the bread and drink the juice, representing your body and your blood of your sacrifice on the cross, help us to remember that it was not for the moment you did that, but you did that for eternity's sake. To right the wrongs of sinful humanity to actually begin to bring the kingdom come now. And that you're inviting everybody, the whole world, every tongue, tribe, and nation to join in in the beautiful church that you're creating, that you're going to present to the Father in heaven. That we won't be wearing raggedy, disgusting clothes anymore. That, that you, will, you will adorn us in beautiful clothes, white, shining spotless, clean clothes. Give us a vision for the future, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.